So we are going over the next two weeks, going to be talking about fear. And uh, fear is not necessarily a fun or a comfortable topic to always talk about. But the way we do our preaching here at the church most of the time is we just work through books of the Bible, which means that we just preach the next passage that's coming up. And this is what the Lord and all of his wisdom and all of his understanding has put before us over these next couple of weeks. Fear. Uh, But for us to actually open the Word of God and to understand it and have it sink in deep and penetrate our hearts, uh, we need the Holy Spirit for such a work, don't we? We can never do that or manufacture that in our own strength. So we're going to take a moment. We're going to pray for Josh. We're going to pray that God would just be moving powerfully among us even now. So I want to encourage you guys, please pray with me. This isn't me praying. This is us praying. And us together, we're coming before the Almighty God. We're coming before His throne. And He is so gracious to hear from us. And He cares about us and He loves us. So guys, take this time seriously and please join me in prayer. Uh, Dear God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we believe You are the one true holy living God and we come before You as needy people, Lord. Each one of us has things going on in our own hearts and in our own minds. Even as we walk in the doors today, we uh, have all sorts of concerns and stresses and things that are seeking to distract us from being focused on You this morning. Dear God, I ask in all of Your grace that You would come and meet us now and just make our hearts so soft, God. That You would make our minds so receptive that Your Word would just come and it would hit us and it would stir around in us and it would change us, Lord. We're here because we want to worship You. We also want to hear from You, God. You're the only one who can speak truth into our lives in a way that is transformative. So God, even now as some of us are sitting here and it's just sort of feeling routine and the Gospel just seems sort of normal and there seems sort of powerless and for others of us, we're just so bogged down with the the weight of of earthly concerns, God, that it's just hard to worship You well. God, I just pray You would wipe all of that away. And help us, God, to receive Your Word. So Holy Spirit, we invite You now. Please be powerfully moving among us. God, we pray for Josh and we thank You that You've given him such a great opportunity to preach the, the Gospel, to preach Your Word, to... Chinese Christians who they themselves may be in need of a word of encouragement this morning. And I pray, dear God, that in their time together, you would point them all to the cross. God, we love you. We thank you. Please be with us now as we open up our Bibles and speak to us. Teach us, we ask and we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. So when I think about fear, I always think about a Scottish runner. Uh, which might not make a whole lot of sense to you guys, so let me explain. Uh, one of the uh, biggest fears among people is public speaking, and uh, for the longest time, that was my greatest fear. Just completely terrified. If I was in school and I had to get, even in college and undergrad, if I had to give a, a, a project or stand up for a couple of minutes, it was this nerve-wracking, terrifying sort of thing. And uh, I remember my first experience of really getting in front of a crowd and speaking was so, uh, so scary that I still remember it with vivid detail. But also now when I think about being scared, I go right back to that moment. And it was many years ago, it was at my old church, and they had this uh, ministry going called Teen Involvement. 
And it was a really cool ministry. What they did is they brought all these youth groups from surrounding churches to our church. And uh, they had all of these competitions that served as a platform for all these teenagers to serve and to figure out where they're gifted. So you go into the, the sanctuary and there would be like a battle of the worship bands happening. Or you go into a, one of the rooms in the church and there'd be all these teenagers see, preaching these sermonettes or, or teaching Sunday school lessons and all of these different things. It was really cool. And uh, this, one, this one year, one of the directors had this great idea to uh, entertain the, the teenagers on their lunch break. Uh, but she didn't want to just entertain them. She wanted to entertain them in an informative way. Doesn't that sound fun? Entertain them while teaching them something. And her idea was, all right, so we're going to get people from our church. We're going to dress you up like different heroes of the faith. And you're going to all take turns standing up and you're going to give a little monologue as if you were that person. And uh, somehow I got asked, and it must have been the sovereign hand of God that caused the words, okay, I'll do it, to come out of my mouth because I was so scared, so scared. And uh, not a big deal, you may be thinking, but it was for me. I was terrified. For three weeks leading up, that's about as much time as they gave me, and uh, for three weeks leading up, I had this pit in my stomach, just this knot in my stomach, and uh, every time I would just be in a casual conversation with a friend, and the thought of teen involvement came up in my mind, uh, I would just, I'd get this feeling like I was going to throw up right then. It was awful. So I said yes, and I was assigned the duty of portraying Eric Little, a Scottish runner. It's all making sense now. For those of you who don't know who Eric Little is, he was a Scottish Olympian. The movie Chariots of Fire was made to depict his life. He, among all these other accomplishments, is famous for um, not racing in his best race in the Olympics because it was held on a Sunday and he wanted to give the Lord that day. Instead, he raced in a different race and he still won the gold medal anyways. So that's Eric Little and that's all well and good for him, but what it meant for me was that I was going to have to dress up in a little runner's outfit, pretend to have a Scottish accent, which I cannot do. I'm not even going to try to show you what that was like, and give this five to eight minute monologue. And I was so, so scared. So much so that when I think about fear, my heart starts to race as I think about teen involvement standing up there as if I were Eric Little. But I'm not alone in experiencing fear, am I? Fear is this universal emotion that we all deal with, we struggle with, we experience it. Some of you guys, even as you're sitting here in the seats this morning, are fearing different things. Maybe there are circumstances in your lives or relationships or things happening that are causing you to be fearful. Some of you are fearful of the future. Some of you are fearful of what other people might be thinking of you. Some of you are fearful of Uh, death or loneliness or whatever. So we know what fear is, and the question isn't a matter of if we fear. The question is, who or what are we fearing? And that's exactly the question that Jesus answers in our text for today. So turn with me to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12, verses 4 to 7. This is the Word of God. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear Him 
who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies and not one of them is forgotten before God? Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. So Jesus is on the road to Jerusalem. He's teaching, he's ministering, and he takes this moment to instruct his disciples about fear. And the very first directive that comes out of his mouth is don't fear people. Jesus warns them not to fear people. Look at verse 4. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body. And after that, have nothing more that they can do. And this is a warning from Jesus to his disciples whom he addresses as friends. It's Jesus saying, look at guys, I love you, I care about you, you're beloved to me. Let, let me let you in on something that's harmful and destructive and debilitating and sinful. And that thing is the fear of man. Now the fear of man manifests itself in all kinds of ways. Taking all different shapes and forms. We know that just from life, right? Uh, we're so commonly crippled and controlled by fearing the emotional and the social influence of others over us. This is when you're just too concerned with what other people think, other people think or don't think, too obsessed with being liked or disliked, accepted, rejected, included, or excluded. This is what uh, Peter was experiencing in Antioch, as we read in Galatians 2. He's, he's sitting there, he's eating with all these Gentiles, which is a perfectly great thing to be doing. And then in walk these Jews who he describes as the circumcision party. These men that uh, wrongly thought that to eat with or like a Gentile was unclean. And they walk in and Peter feels the, the social pressure of their presence. And what happens? The text says he separated himself fearing the circumcision party. And Peter's fearful actions were so off base, they were so wrong that Paul has to stand up and publicly rebuke him. Peter's behavior altered because he was afraid of what these guys thought of him. And if I'm being honest with you, if I'm being transparent, that's exactly what was happening in my heart during teen involvement. Because if I, as I think back, it wasn't necessarily that I was, I was afraid to speak. I was afraid what other people were going to think about my speaking. And the fear of man was gripping my heart as I stood in front of that crowd just terrified to fail, terrified what these people were going to think about me. And isn't that the same fear of man that you guys experience every day as you're in a conversation with a coworker or a neighbor or a family member or a friend and they're non-believers and you're, you're having this conversation and it's comfortable and the next thing you know it takes this winding road subtly and now it's getting a little more crass and it's not honoring the Lord so much and rather than stand up for Christ with your words, you sort of go with the flow. You're laughing, you're joking, you're throwing in comments here and there because you're too afraid of what this person is going to say or think if you were to take a stand for Christ with your speech. So fearing other people is this common form of the fear of man, but that's not necessarily what's happening in our text, is it? In context, Jesus touches on our fear of man's physical influence over us. He's assuming that his disciples might be tempted to fear these people who had the means and the, and, and, and the motivation to harm their physical body. And uh, physical death was a real threat for Jesus' listeners. These guys, they lived in this 
complex political world. They were in the Roman Empire. They're underneath the authority, the earthly authority of Roman governors and all of that. And then uh, it's also this world where the, the Jewish religious leaders held all this sway uh, among their community of faith. And if you only want to see the ability of those guys to kill other people, just look at Christ. Jewish religious leaders put all this pressure, uh, political pressure on the Romans until one man, Pontius Pilate, a Roman governor, gives the word and the next thing you know, Christ is hanging on a cross. Now we know, of course, that Jesus' death on a cross was ordained by God. But it remains true that we, like them, live in a world where men have the means to kill other men. That is not news. And as scary as that reality can be, Jesus utters some of the most liberating words that will help you think about and approach other people who have the means and the motivation to harm you. He tells you not to be afraid of them. Now as I mentioned, Jesus' words are a a warning. And in all of His wisdom, He doesn't want His followers to, to be fearful of men, to be fearful of people in part because the fear of man produces ungodly things in us. And Scripture makes it clear that at least one of the ungodly outworkings of the fear of man in us is hypocrisy. So turn with me to Luke chapter 11, verse 37 and following. So we actually left off last week in chapter 11, verse 36. And this picks up where we left last week, and it's going to go all the way to where we started in chapter 12, verse 4. Luke 11.37, while Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools! Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. Here's what's going on. Jesus is speaking, and this Pharisee invites him to dinner. And uh, he's taken aback initially that Jesus does not wash up. And please understand, it's not a hygiene issue. As far as we can tell, they didn't have understanding of what germs were back then. It's not a hygiene issue. It's a ceremonial cleanness issue is what's happening. So these Pharisees have taken God's law, which as you read in the Old Testament was meant if this holy God's going to dwell in the midst of this unholy people, the people had to keep themselves clean by obeying the law. We know the law has been perfectly fulfilled in Christ uh, on this side of the cross. But this Pharisee is taking God's law, he's adding all these rules, all these regulations to it, trying to be holy, trying to do good, trying to earn their way into God's favor when really they're moving themselves further away from God, aren't they? And one of the rules that they added to God's law was cleaning up before a meal. And Jesus just doesn't go along with it. And then this conversation ensues, and Jesus just unloads, doesn't He? He doesn't doesn't spare a breath. He just gets right into rebuking these guys. You know what? You're too concerned with the outside of the cup. And you're not concerned enough about the inside. You're concerned with looking like a pious, godly, righteous, holy person when inside you're just so loaded with greed and with wickedness. And after that, Jesus just 
unleashes this series of woes upon the Pharisee. Now in the Old Testament, especially in the prophets, we see all of these woe oracles where a prophet will see some, some, some town or some people where uh, they're walking away from the Lord and, and God's put it on their heart to condemn what they're doing and he says, woe to you. It's basically saying, listen, it's, it's not looking good for you. You're in big, big trouble. And Jesus gives these, this series of woes to the Pharisee. The first one is in verse 42. But woe to you, Pharisees. For you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You're tithing all these things externally. You're so legalistic about it that you're even going to your spice rack. And you're taking a tenth of everything and you're tithing them. But you're not loving God and you're not loving people and you ought to be doing all of it. Woe to you. Woe number two, verse 43. Woe to you Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace. You love your own status. You love it when other people look at you and see, wow, they're impressive. You love the esteem that comes from other people. Woe to you. Woe number three, verse 44. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves. And people walk over them without knowing it. Their hidden hypocrisy is now at a point where it's harming other people. They're like these unmarked graves that other people could uh, accidentally walk over and potentially encounter a body, a dead person, and that would make them unclean. They're these people who are spreading their uncleanness with their hypocrisy. Woe to you. And then Jesus' woe oracles continue. They're now directed at a lawyer or a scribe who interjects. Verse 45, one of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And I love Jesus' response. And he said, woe to you lawyers also. It's kind of funny, right? If you read it from our perspective. He steps in like, wait a minute, what you're saying actually applies to us. And Jesus just, woe to you too then. It's great. I love that. Woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. You guys are interpreting and applying the law in such a way that you are so bogging down the people. You are overburdening the people, and yet you are not willing to even lift a finger to help ease the burden. You're selfish. You're lacking compassion. Woe to you. Woe number five. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah who perished between the altar and the sanctuary, Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. The wisdom of God sent prophets that their forefathers, that their ancestors killed. And though these people, these lawyers, these scribes, did not personally, physically, literally kill off the prophets, they have the same spirit and the same heart condition and the same heart attitude as their forefathers who did. They love themselves. They don't love God. They don't love God's representatives. They're building the prophets' tombs and they now exist as this testament to their own rejection of Christ and to how little they fear God. 
the message is clear. While you think you are so godly, you are actually the polar opposite and you will be judged. The last woe, woe number 6, verse 52. Woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves and you hindered those who were entering. So not only did these guys not enter into the knowledge of God, but they're also functioning as an obstacle to other people's other people entering. You're leading others astray. And then we read this in verse 53 and following. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him, to catch him in something he might say. In the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be made known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and whatever you have whispered in the private room shall be proclaimed on the housetops. So Jesus condemns these religious leaders with this series of woes. They then make it their mission to try to entrap Jesus into saying something he shouldn't say. Jesus then turns to his disciples and warns them, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. He warns them to beware of the hypocrisy of these guys. And then in the very next breath, after saying all the hidden things are going to be made known, all those internal things, they're going to be made known. Keep watch over your heart. The internal is what's really important. And after saying all that, in the next breath he says, and don't fear people. He has this conversation with the lawyers, with the Pharisees. He turns and he tells his disciples, don't be hypocrites and don't fear people. He's showing them, guys, don't go along with people like this. These men whose spiritual leadership is actually harmful for you. Don't be fearful of them. And if you do, chances are you're going to end up like them. As life gets tense and you become embattled and maybe your life even becomes threatened, if, if you were even in danger in some way, uh, there's this temptation that you would fear those people who are rejecting you or persecuting you and that would make you a hypocrite. And Jesus doesn't want that for you, Christian. He wants your, exter- your exterior to match your interior. If you stand in fear of other people like the Pharisee and like the scribes, chances up you'll end up trying to look good on the outside while inside your heart and your soul are rotting away. If you end up getting trapped in the fear of man, you'll end up caring more about looking good to everyone else than looking good to God. If you get stuck in this trap of the fear of man, chances are you'll end up caring more about your status and your comfort and your standing in society more than anything else. You'll end up selfish. You'll end up with no compassion for other people. Always putting your needs first because the fear of man makes everything about me. It's about my safety and my comfort and what's coming to me and what's best for me and how I'm perceived. And if you fear people, chances are you're going to lead other people astray with your hypocrisy. So even now, take a moment and think through the question that Jesus answers for us. Whom are you fearing? 
Is your reputation more important to you than the reputation of Jesus Christ? Do you care more about what other people think about you than what Christ thinks about you? Are you seeking affirmation from other people or are you seeking affirmation from God Almighty? Are you a people pleaser or are you a God pleaser? Are you happy to just bob along in the current of popular trends and fads and ideas and and opinions and worldviews? Are you willing to swim in a countercultural direction upstream following Christ and His Word if He calls you to it? Ask yourself, do I look more like the Pharisee and the lawyer than I do Jesus? And if the answer is yes, chances are you're struggling with the fear of man. Well, Jesus tells us whom not to fear. And now He tells us whom to fear. And this is a warning. And if Jesus warns us of something, we better listen up. And He warns us to fear God. Look at verse 5. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear Him who after He is killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear Him. Now Jesus is clearly referencing God here. The question is, what does it mean to fear God? It can be one of those generic sort of Christian things that we throw out there. You know what I mean? Like someone struggling with something like, oh, fear God, brother. And they leave with no idea what that actually means. Like, okay, but I don't know what to do with that. It's not helpful. So what does the fear of God actually mean? Well, I want to suggest that fearing God is more than just being scared. That it's deeper. There's more to it. There's more layers to it. It's more nuanced than just being terrified. And for an example, please turn with me to Jonah chapter 1. Jonah chapter 1. It's one of my favorite Old Testament books. Uh, For those of you who aren't maybe familiar with Jonah... Jonah was a prophet. It's a unique prophetical book because it's more about the prophet than it is his message. And um, Jonah was a prophet. He was charged by God to go preach repentance in Nineveh. Uh, The problem is Jonah didn't like Nineveh or the Ninevites. And he didn't want them to repent because he knew that if they did, God would forgive. And he didn't want them to be forgiven. So he didn't go. He hops on this boat with all these pagan sailors And uh, they set off for Tarshish in a different direction. And uh, while they're out at sea, God uh, sends this storm to come upon them. And uh, we're going to look at a few verses in Jonah chapter 1. Now I want you guys to pay close attention to how the word fear and how fear is being nuanced in each of these passages. So this great storm comes upon this boat of men sailing across the sea. And in verse 5 it says, Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. So these are pagans. They all worship these counterfeit, fake, false, dead gods who could never answer a prayer at all because they're not the one true living God. But they worship all these gods and they all get together. And they, they say, the storms come upon us. We're fearful. Let's cry out to our gods. They're scared. They go get Jonah. We read this in verse 9, and he said to them, I am a Hebrew, this is Jonah, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven. So his theology is really good, but it's definitely not matching the way he's living, right? I mean, he's running from God. He's not exactly living a fearful life. Anyways, I am Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid. 
and said to him, what is this that you have done? So the men have this conversation with Jonah. Jonah explains uh, the whole story. Uh, They're afraid. They decide one of our gods must have brought this storm upon us. So they cast lots to see which one. The lot cast to Jonah. Uh, They're they're afraid. The storm is bearing down. It's, It's continuing to rage until Jonah says, throw me overboard. Just throw me overboard and maybe God will relent. And we read this in verse 15. So they picked up Jonah and they hurled him into the sea and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and they made vows. You see the difference from the way the first, the first reference of fear to, to this last one in verse 15? At first they are scared. They're terrified. There's this impending danger. Their lives are in danger. They could potentially die at sea. They're terrified. They're scared. But when God miraculously calms the storm, and now they're sitting on peaceful waters, and they're looking at stillness and serenity that just came out of chaos, they are more than terrified. They are more than just scared. They aren't fearful because of an imminent threat any longer. They fear the Lord exceedingly because they have seen a glimpse of who He is and what He can do. To fear God is to recognize His immense awesomeness and His glory and His holiness and His power and then to respond with reverence and awe. There's this this nuance of reverence and awe that bleeds into the way we fear God. Psalm 33 verses 8 and 9 shows us how appropriate the fear of God is. How healthy it is for us. It says, let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. For He spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. He is a God who speaks and galaxies come into existence. He is a God who holds them and sustains them and nourishes them all. That the universe as we know it would fall apart if God's providence was not true. And fear is the appropriate response when we recognize who He is and we see His attributes and we recognize His works. We fear Him. We show Him reverence. We stand in awe. We tremble with respect. That's the fear of God. These sailors sat on these calm waters having just experienced a miracle of God. And they were filled with this reverent, awestruck, fear because they saw a glimpse of who God was and what He could do. And Jesus warns us to fear God like that. Like those sailors. So to stand in this fearful amazement of who He is and what He is able to do. And the text reveals that a healthy fear of God is connected to His authority. Look at verse 5 again. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. So when you're comparing God, fearing God and fearing people, Jesus says only God has the authority to judge and to condemn and to save. This is a level of authority that no one else possesses. It is unique to God Almighty. Man is powerless over eternal things. But God knows and He ordains and He holds all things together, even our eternity, even your eternity. God is a judge who will justly reign at the final judgment. Just read Revelation chapter 20. 
This gives him pretty unique fearsomeness, doesn't it? And I know in America today, talking about hell is most certainly not a popular thing to do. If you want to win a popularity contest, don't talk about the reality of hell. But I I would be doing you such a disservice to just pass it over because the text says it and the Bible clearly shows us that hell is a real place of eternal torment for those people who reject Jesus Christ that they will be punished and suffer there forever. And God is the one who has the authority to cast sinners there. So He is the one that we fear. And just as fearing God is rooted in His authority, and also this healthy fear of God gives us this eternal perspective. You see, as we start to think about how far man's reach goes, they can kill our bodies, and then after that, they have nothing left that they can do to us. From the Christian perspective, okay, not a big deal, right? They can kill our bodies, and then I have eternity with God. And when you compare how far man's reach goes to how far God's reach goes, who after he kills has the authority to cast into hell, things get pretty clear pretty quickly, don't they? Priorities start to get worked out pretty quickly. It's sobering to think about. I recently flew out to Minnesota to uh, attend a friend's wedding, and it was my first time ever walking around Minneapolis. And it was a really cool city. And uh, I did not realize that the Mississippi River uh, flows right through the Twin Cities. And uh, we were, my friend and I one day, were standing over this walking bridge. So it, it was a bridge that goes over the Mississippi just for walkers or runners or bicyclists. And we're standing there, kind of leaning over the edge, looking at the water. And uh, I started asking him about the river. I just got really interested. And um, he told me that a little bit north, in northern Minnesota, are the... Um, is the beginning of the, of the Mississippi River. And he told me that at the headwaters there where the river starts, it's actually just like a bubbling little brook. That the Mississippi is this little stream at the headwaters. And my friend was telling me, yeah, there's actually a spot where you can straddle the Mississippi with one foot on one bank and one foot on the other bank. And uh, just fascinating to me. And our conversation got me thinking that if you're there in the headwaters and you're looking at the Mississippi River, not much, right? I mean, it's this little, dinky, short, small, unimpressive little stream. But it's not until you start looking forward, past the headwaters, until you realize that beyond this dinky little stream is this powerful river, the mighty Mississippi, which gets as far as 11 miles across, flows over 2,300 miles until it empties out in the Gulf of Mexico. It's this picture of eternal perspective. In the scope of eternity, our lives are like the headwaters. Short, small. And then you you compare it to how vast and how endless and how broad and how great and how impressive eternity is and it it gives you this new new understanding about life it gives you this new understanding about your time in the headwaters doesn't it that the headwaters is this is is only one part of this giant river the headwaters doesn't don't exist in and of themselves and fearing people rather than fearing god is living like the headwaters is all that there is but when you start fearing god rather than men with your eyes on eternity 
rather than the world, you're living with this understanding that the river is far, far greater. And you start to experience this unchained freedom to walk with God and to fear God and to follow God knowing that He has the authority to to, to hold you in His hands for all of eternity. So we can suffer temporal hardship and not be afraid. We can deal with earthly struggles and not be afraid because our eternity is in God's control. So everything we do, everything we think, everything we say filters through this filter of eternal thinking and of fearing God and of seeking to please Him. And before you know it, as we recognize God's authority and we start to think eternally, the awestruck fear that Jesus warns us to have becomes our calling card. Because fearing the Lord yields fruit in your life. And before you know it, you start to live out passages like 1 Samuel 12.24, which says, Only fear the Lord and serve Him faithfully with all your heart, for consider what great things He has done for you. You're fearing and you're serving. And a healthy fear of God will keep you from sin as we read in Proverbs chapter 8, verse 13, which says the fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. And the fear of the Lord uh, yields obedience as we read in Deuteronomy chapter 31. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You'll become more wise if you're fearing God as we read in the book of Proverbs chapter 9. The fear of the Lord drives us to trust Him more. As we read in Psalm chapter 40, which says, He put a new song in my heart, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. So Jesus warns His followers. He's warning us to fear the Lord. Actually, for added emphasis, He warns us twice, right? He says it twice in verse 5. Because this healthy and this biblical fear of Him is so good for us. To be God-fearing puts faith and obedience in their proper places. We recognize His authority and, and in great faith we trust Him with our lives and our efforts and everything. And we obey and we walk with Him knowing that doing things God's way is better than doing things my way. Fearing God takes the focus off of ourselves. And it puts them right, the focus rightly where it belongs, which is on God. Which means that my ideas submit to God's ideas. And my ways submit to God's ways. And my words submit to God's words. And I understand that's much easier said than done. That the temptation is for us to hear a warning like this one and be really intimidated to the point where you do nothing. And after leaving this text, walking out of this building, you don't move one inch closer to God. That's the temptation that's there for probably all of us right now. So I want to encourage you to seek to know the Lord more. Because it is the fear of God that our culture and even our churches is losing. And as our knowledge of God's immensity and His glory and His power diminishes, our, 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 our fearfulness, our, our obedience, all of it becomes watered down and it becomes casual. But if we could only regain this biblical understanding of how authoritative God is, how fearsome He is, through knowing Him more, maybe we'd end up looking a little bit more like Jesus. So Jesus warns us whom not to fear. He warns us who to fear. And He's going to continue on and He tells us also 
not to fear God's ability to care for us. Look at verses 6 and 7. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, and not one of them is forgotten before God? Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, for you are more value than many sparrows. You feel the tension there? I mean, in verse 5, he tells us, fear God. And then here, he's telling us, fear not. There's a bit of a tension there, isn't there? And I'll explain it like this. When you fear God, you don't need to fear anything else. That we as believers are fearful, yet we're unafraid. Isn't that what those verses communicate? Jesus uses this example of sparrows. And uh, sparrows were food for poor people. So if you couldn't afford meat or a meal that was more substantial, at least you could get a couple of sparrows for a few pennies. And um, as lowly a creature as a sparrow is, the text says that God knows everyone. He remembers everyone. And even still more remarkable, we are much more valuable to, to God than the sparrows. So what does that say about how God knows and loves and cares for us? In fact, God even knows every hair that is on our heads. Now I know that, I was just reading this statistic, I have no idea whatsoever how true it is. So don't take this as gospel, it's not. It's a statistic I just came across. That said, the average person has over 100,000 hairs on their head. I don't know who the genius was that counted up a bunch of people's hair, but somebody did. Now imagine, and obviously some of us have more hair than others. That's, that's okay, we're not going there. Imagine 100,000 hair on average. God knows every single one. When the hair falls out in the shower, God knows about it. It's amazing. It shows us how omniscient He is. How how His providence just holds us up. How caring, how loving He is. So there's theology in these verses that can hold you up on the darkest day. If God is omniscient, if He is all-knowing, and if you are valuable to Him, if He knows you inside out and backwards, and then you... I mean, what do you have to fear if He's, if he's sovereign and, and He's holding all things together? What have you to fear but God Almighty? Nothing. We fear God. We don't have to fear anything else. Now with that said, you still might be working through the tension of verse 5, fear God. And then here, fear not. Don't fear. And if you want further clarity, Jesus is the key. Pastor and theologian John Piper has this awesome illustration that he uses when he talks about the fear of God. And uh, he says, imagine you're this explorer uh, on an Arctic glacier. So you're out there on an Arctic glacier, you're exploring, and this crazy storm comes upon you. And it's so just insane and bad, and you're so afraid. And then you find a little cleft in the ice, and you scoot in there. And you're just kept totally safe from from this crazy storm. And here's what Piper says. At first, there was the fear that this terrible storm and awesome terrain might claim your life. But then you found a refuge and you gained the hope that you would be safe. But not everything in the feeling called fear vanished from your heart. Only the life-threatening part. There remained the trembling, the awe, the wonder, the feeling that you would never want to tangle with such a storm or be the adversary of such power. The fear of God is what is left of the storm when you have a safe place to watch right in the middle of it. 
Oh, the thrill of being here in the center of the awful power of God, yet protected by God Himself. You see, God's almighty power and His just wrath are awesome. And they are fearsome. And every last one of us as sinners have good right to fear for our earthly lives as well as our eternal lives. But Jesus is the cleft. Jesus is the refuge. Jesus is the safe place. Jesus is the hiding place. Jesus makes it possible for sinners like us to experience the awe and the wonder of God without fearing for our lives. Jesus is the one that makes it possible for us to tremble with this reverent respect for who God is without fearing that His power is just going to obliterate us. Jesus makes it possible for us to know God while being protected by God, kept safe from everything else. Thanks to Jesus, we are fearful yet unafraid. So Jesus sets us free to live in the tension of this text. Jesus frees us not to fear people, but to fear God. Jesus frees us to fear God, but not to fear anything else. Thanks to Jesus, we are fearful, yet we are unafraid. And this is only truth because Jesus ushers us into the holy presence of God as people who have been justified and redeemed and made clean and forgiven because He looked on us when we were the enemies of God, when we were sinners, when we were dead in our sin, bound for an eternity in hell. And that is clearly what we deserved. And He looked down upon us and He had compassion. And He knows that the holy triune God cannot look at our sin and say, in all my justice, I just, I just cannot let it go unpunished. I can't let it go unpunished. And Jesus knew that. And He looked at us with mercy and grace and love. And He came down and He condescended to take on flesh. And He walked among men. And He was so perfect when we were so wretched. And He went to the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. So that the justice of God was satisfied. And He took the wrath of a holy God that we deserved. He took it upon Himself. But He wasn't defeated by the, by the cross. And He conquered the grave and He rose back to life so that those of us who, like many of you, who place faith in Jesus as your Savior, if you would only call out on His name, you'd be given forgiveness and you'd be made clean and, and justified and the relationship with God that your sin broke, is re- broke was repaired by the blood of Jesus Christ. And He promises us not only salvation. He not only promises us forgiveness from our sin, He promises us adoption into the family of God as His sons and daughters were so undeserving. But that is the gift of Jesus Christ to you and to me. Jesus Christ makes it possible for sinners like us to be in the holy, righteous, awful, powerful presence of God and not be consumed by His wrath. He keeps us safe. Yet He also makes it possible for us to now live in the freedom of being a Christian. The freedom of knowing Him and relating to Him. So that we no longer have to fear anything going on in this life or in the next. He holds you in His hand as His beloved. That is who you are in Christ. But it's only because of Jesus. So Jesus takes all the glory. Thanks to Jesus, we are able 
to be fearful yet unafraid. So as we close up this morning, I don't want to leave you with this laundry list of do's and don'ts, how to be a better God-fearing person. I just want to point you to the cross. I want to point you to Jesus. I want to uh, encourage you to, to, to know Him more. Spend time with Him. This is His Word, His revealed Word to you. Spend time in here. Pray. Treasure Him. Love Him. Confess your sins to Him. Have real relationship with Him. Seek to know your Savior, your King, your Redeemer, your uh, perfect prophet, priest, and King, Jesus Christ. Seek to know Him more. That thanks to Jesus, we are fearful yet unafraid. Um, So we're going to close and I'm going to give you guys a moment with God. And I'm going to give you some space in your week right now to respond to His Word. Uh, So even now, close, close your eyes. Spend some time with God and I I completely recognize that some of you here may have been wandering away from the Lord. Maybe subtly you're fearing the Lord less and less and less as the pressures of life just get heavier and heavier and heavier. Give those things to God. Jesus loves you. He knows you. He wants relationship with you. If you've been walking in sin unrepentedly, give it to the Lord. Confess it. He is so faithful to forgive everything. And so faithful to restore. And for some of you, maybe you've never even entered into relationship with God. The Bible says, whoever calls in the name of Jesus will be saved. That's a promise of God to you. And if the Lord is stirring up your heart, From your heart to His, all you have to say is, Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I know I fall short, but holy God, thank You for dying for me and giving me new life. I trust You as my Savior. I praise Your name. And the Bible says You are His forever if that was genuinely from your heart to His heart. So spend a few moments with God. And in just a minute, Kevin's going to start playing and I want to encourage you guys to stand up and leave this place praising Jesus Christ. There's never been and never will be anyone who's so worthy of our attention or our heart or our praise. So take a moment with God.